Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. A series of words said out loud in half-hour bursts. Tonight, how to look. Good evening. The subject of how to look is enormous. Well, it probably isn't, but it feels enormous, possibly because it's depressed or premenstrual. <laughs> And to help me, we welcome back someone who's fast becoming someone who's returned for a second appearance after his first appearance last week. Please welcome back Paul B. Davis. Hello. And from last series, the popular and ever lovely lady actress, Miss Juliet Stevenson. Hello. Now, Juliet, it's lovely for you to be here, but you haven't been anything much that was popular lately, have you? <laughs> Actually, I was in Pierpoint. Hmm. Biopic about a lovable executioner. Win anything? Well, I got best long-suffering wife in a northern thing at the BAFTAs. <laughs> Lead to anything? Yes, I got a call back for another film, the role of Anton Chekhov's wife. Biopic called Chekhov? No, they're calling it Anton because of the Star Trek confusion. <laughs> I didn't get it, anyway. Kate Blanchett got it. Of course she did, boring cows and everything. <laughs> no one else is going to get a look in at the moment. Maybe you need to lighten up, be a mum in Hollyoaks for a while. Then you, you wouldn't have to fall back on doing the voice for those government information films. I haven't even done many of them lately. They've gone really weird, the safety adverts. Like that one where they tell you, when you run over a child, always make sure you're doing 20, not 40. <laughs> does take rather a lot for granted, that one, doesn't it? Anywho, don't worry, you're still a fine-looking woman. Thanks. Just need your looks to go, and then you can do character parts. <laughs> I look forward to it. I'm just delighted to help out. There aren't many female parts in comedy. Oh, I've met a few. Um, <laughs> now, Paul, how has your life changed since you were on the show last week? Oh, it's been mad, Jeremy. The phone hasn't stopped ringing. Really? Yes, it's somewhere under the passenger seat, but I'm damned if I can find it. Oh, that's <laughs> it. Anywho, how to look. Now, Juliet, the acting thing. How much of it is about mannerisms? You know, the little ticks and bits of physical business actors use to animate their characters. I don't bother, really. You don't if you've got kids. But don't, don't you go around looking at people and thinking, oh, that would be a good walk for Hedda Gabler, or, oh, that's exactly how I imagine Anna Karenina would issue a parking ticket. Because <laughs> I've noticed that actors speak of finding the character. They'll say, oh, I saw him on the bus this morning. Well, that's just something you say to seize the high ground on the first day of rehearsals. You've got to seem prepared. You know, you're not going to intimidate the other actors by saying, sorry, I'm late. I realised I couldn't do the accent, so I've had a few drinks to steady my nerves. <laughs> no. But let's look at the subject of looking more generally. So, how do I look? Well, I'm 45, so bewildered mainly. <laughs> People keep telling me reference numbers to make a note of, which would be all right if they gave me letters and numbers, but instead they say, Sierra, Tango, Oscar, November. And I think, oh, no, how do you spell Sierra? <laughs> then they ask for my name, and I say, Jeremy, and they say, how do you spell Jeremy? And I say, well, the usual way, J. And they say, is that Q for quintet? And I say, no, J-E, oh, blimey, Juliet, Echo, Rectum, Euphoria, Mudlark, Yeomanry. <laughs> Imagine what it's like being called Juliet. How do you spell Juliet? Well, uh, Juliet, uniform, but how do you spell Juliet? J for Juliet. How do you spell Juliet? If my husband's name was Oscar, I'd be buggered. I should imagine so. 
But of course, for most Radio 4 listeners, being over 40 is just a memory. And, <laughs> and it's often said that you're as old as you look. Feel. That's very kind, Juliet, but I'm trying to focus here. <laughs> And there we go. Focusing actually means looking at something properly so that the image becomes clear. It's often said that we're too fixated on appearances, but I don't think we look at things closely enough. It's said that Tony Blair's early appeal was about what he looked like and that David Cameron shares that appeal. But what they do share physically is that they look as though they're good-looking. When you look properly, they're not very good-looking at all. <laughs> and it's now acknowledged that Blair's looking a bit rough. And though I would accuse him of many things, I don't believe he's deceived us in that regard. He's aged by ten years over a ten-year period. <laughs> I'm sure the finance pages of The Telegraph would love to prove that his figures don't add up and he's actually aged by 18 years, or... <laughs> or 20 if you subtract seasonally affected suntans. But I think it would be more disturbing if the hopes and dreams of the people who elected him disintegrated while his looks magically endured. And to be fair to him, he is running a country. He commits troops while I'm still in my dressing gown. I don't think there's anything phony about his distressed look. Clearly, he's a worrier. But that is in part the product of his extreme vanity, kind of, does this war make me look fat? All politicians who've sent soldiers into battle speak of the terrible responsibility. They all seem jolly enough when we win. The grim face starts to become believable when the war is out of control, like that point at your child's party when you realise you forgot to give the other parents a pick-up time. <laughs> in a way, television is very helpful in showing up reality. I suspect senior politicians are completely in control of their body language. They're not caught off guard during the leader's speech. When Blair speaks, Brown knows his shoulders are saying, you still here? <laughs> when Cameron speaks, we don't need a forensic psychiatrist to explain what David Davis means by playing hangman with Tebbit. <laughs> and actually, it's educative to see the must ranks of the Tory party up close. While Cameron will say and do whatever it takes to attract the votes of the socially liberal, you can see that the party he leads is still thinking more in terms of electrodes than electability. <laughs> The reason Tories are so worried about the army being overstretched is that there are no longer enough soldiers in barracks to reverse Britain's experiment with universal suffrage when called upon to do so. But neither Cameron nor Brown is asking us to look at politics in a completely different way. Both ask that we peer through the prism of profitability. Even when it comes to global warming, they're not suggesting a complete rethink of how we organise our economy. They speak of carbon trading, which means you can emit lots of carbon if you buy up the credits of people who don't emit lots of carbon, which seems like a law under which a man can let his dog foul the footpath as much as he likes so long as he pays his neighbour to stick superglue up his dog's bum. <laughs> Well, it's a bit like that. Enough to warrant saying dog's bum on the radio, anyway. <laughs> but let's think more about body language. Paul, you're a professor of bodymorphic dissonance at the online university of the fourth age. All right, yeah. Well, uh, could you tell us a bit about that, then? Absolutely. We are fascinated with body language because we make an assumption that people are lying to us. This is based on a careful analysis of the overwhelming evidence that we're lying to them. If someone says, I like your new trousers, and if you lend me £50, I'll pay you back on Thursday, and all the time they're scratching their nose, we recognise that as a subconscious signal that they're lying, especially if we're not wearing any trousers. <laughs> and if they go on to say... 
By the way, I've got terrible dermatitis and it's really making my nose itchy. It means they can tell from our body language that we're trying to interpret theirs. So to avoid that, we'd need our body language to lie for us, although they could detect that if they were trained in what you might call body language language. But we'd know that if we were experts in what we'd have to refer to as body body language language. <laughs> uh, I feel this is getting a bit complicated, Paul. That's not what your body is telling me, Jeremy. <laughs> You see, you're narrowing your eyes and twisting your torso in this direction with your knees together. So your body is saying that you're feeling excited and interested. No, it's saying I forgot to go to the lavatory before we started. <laughs> Isn't this stuff all a bit of a fad? No, 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 far from it. These techniques go back to the days of the French Revolution, when they discovered that the body language used by the aristocrats to express their superior status changed dramatically if you chopped their heads off. <laughs> Happy days. But, but pausing for a second, I should mention that since the series started, we've received many texts and emails. And may I say, what a pleasure it is pressing the delete button before you've even hit your stride. <laughs> but, Juliet, I believe we've had a message from someone trying to trace a lost relative. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've received a letter I'm sure everyone would like to hear. What, you want me to read it? If you would. As in reading out the listeners' letters? Yes, with clarity and diction. <laughs> okay. Um, dear Mr. Four, I was separated from my brother in a shipwreck. Since then, I've been cross-dressing and working for a man I've fallen in love with. My problem is that he's in love with another woman, and she's in love with me because everyone thinks I'm a boy. <laughs> I know that if only my brother Sebastian were here, he'd sort everything out because we're identical despite being played by different people. This sounds really serious. I think we'd better forward it to Tricia. It's Twelfth Night, Jeremy. What? It's Twelfth Night. Oh, no, I knew I should have got my decorations down before Easter. <laughs> That's bad luck now. Yeah. Funny thing about that letter, though, it sounds a bit like As You Like It by William Shatner. <laughs> yep. Anywho, as I was suggesting in my analysis of modern sophology, there's all sorts of stuff to look at if you look closely. I can't pretend to understand modern art, but I try to appreciate it. We're too ready in this grumpy society to look at an art gallery in the same way we look at a Nike trainer and tut, a child could have made that. <laughs> point, is, point is, Turner Prize artists are not children and they're not stupid and they have been to art school, but you've been put off by the word modern. You might look more sympathetically toward the word local, as in local artist, but what makes the fact that an artist is local a good thing? How is a local artist a boon to the community? They're convenient, but isn't it more important to have a post office and a shop that sells avocados? <laughs> I mean, it's nice when you're having a weekend break to think that only people who've made the same journey as you can bring back the output of the town's painters, but their repertoire doesn't go much beyond a sailing boat in a harbour and a bit of purple for stormy weather. The work looks nice because of where you are, like a woolly hat from South America. You need the Andes behind it for it to work. <laughs> in baggage reclaim, you look like a twerk. <laughs> Paul, you hold a doctorate in perceptual metapsychology at the Slade College of Glam Rock and Pictures. Really? Okay. What can you tell us about artistic appreciation? Well, people need to be educated in how to really look at a work of art. You see, most people, when they look at Michelangelo's David, see a naked youth with a slingshot over his shoulder, ready to do battle with Goliath, looking vaguely to one side, as if he's wondering where all his mates who promised to back him up have gone. <laughs> but is it actually 
a tongue-in-cheek piece depicting a dim-witted peasant lad who's taken all his clothes off and put them in a bin liner to take them to the laundrette, slinging the bag over his shoulder, not realising he's snagged it on a branch so everything's fallen out on the way. Only Brian Sewell can tell us. <laughs> because all art is ambiguous. And so is Brian Sewell. <laughs> There's another puzzling thing about David. Ah, yes, the penis. It appears relatively small but it is, in fact, anatomically accurate. If you were standing stark naked, completely alone on a battlefield, about to fight a heavily armed nine-foot philistine, <laughs> you would shrivel a bit, believe me. But um, if we're not looking closely enough at art, is the state looking too closely at us? That was a bit of a stretch, Jeremy. I haven't said anything before now, but that was proper tenuous, as my kids would say. Only from your perspective. That doesn't mean anything. Depends how you look at it. No, it doesn't. No. Blimey, we never had this trouble when we had Catherine Deneuve on. <laughs> Let's look at the subject of surveillance. Who's looking at us? CCTV is a very current subject at the moment, and a film that's a major talking point in the going-to-the-pictures community is Red Road, which is about a woman who works in a CCTV control room. Now, it's got a lot of kudos, because it's set in Scotland, it's quite depressing, and some of it's horrible to watch. All of which you could say about Brigadoon, and that was made without any funding at all. <laughs> Red Road has received extravagant plaudits in Europe, where, of course, Scottish films count as world cinema. Scotland is to Europeans what Denmark is to us, a land in the faraway north full of drunks who are forever killing themselves because it's dark all winter. <laughs> And in the same way foreigners imagine Guy Ritchie to be a chimney sweep and confidant of the Cray Twins and Albert Doolittle, they probably imagine a film that's set in Glasgow isn't made by upper-middle-class people living in luxury-converted shortbread silos, but by unemployed herring grinders who live in the drains and film only at night for fear of persecution. <laughs> Having said that, none of this is really relevant, and Red Road is actually a good film with a life-affirming message. It just irritated me for some reason, and it's good to offload sometimes. <laughs> Point is, there are about four million CCTV cameras in Britain, and we are one of the most watched peoples on Earth. These cameras play a vital role in providing footage for television programmes, such as Britain's most drunken litter bin throwers. <laughs> but do they also cut crime? Well, it's hard to say, because crime and the perception of crime get confused. People are scared of teenagers, so they feel safer when teenagers are moved on. Young people are feared for wearing hooded garments. But you shouldn't fear anyone in a hood unless they're carrying a scythe. <laughs> Teenagers are accused of standing around in town centres, a charge that has been levelled at asylum seekers, migrant workers and travellers. It's the use of the legs to hold the body in an upright position. That's considered especially menacing. <laughs> of course, for many people, the town centre is now a shopping precinct, a privately owned public space that can set its own rules about what we should look like. When we are shopping, often we don't buy anything. We're just looking, which can look suspicious to the people watching us on CCTV if they don't like the look of us. Earlier, I spoke to the manager of the Brownwater Retail Marina in Ilford, Mrs. Bitterly Farage. <laughs> Mrs. Farage, in front of us is an impressive array of TV screens. Yes, Germany. From here in the control room, my staff can monitor the whole spectrum of Brownwater at any given juncture. 
And what are they on the lookout for? Well, Geminiri, uh, using retinal scans, we can immediately obtain a complete profile of whoever enters the facility. By going straight into the Police National Crime Database, we can see if someone's got a record of violent crime. We then approach them and ask them to work as a security guard. Uh. <laughs> I've, I've heard that surveillance technology is often used to keep tabs on employees. Absolutely, Jeremoid. Before the cameras, we lost up to £7 a year through pilfering, refunds and double bagging. We've also had cameras installed in this room to monitor our surveillance staff, who we found were re-editing footage and submitting it to film festivals. So you're, you're concerned about the misuse of footage? Not if it's done in the proper context. A prosecution, for example, we're not against a creative manipulation of images. It's all about how you frame the subject. Well, show me some of the high-tech wizardry. Okay, Jamiroquai. Let's have some fun. Look at these youths here. The one on the left is laughing, as though to say, to heck with grown-ups and the establishment, I'm going to make petrol bombs and listen to gangster reggae, scaring old people with my break hip dancing. <laughs> or he's just heard a joke. Your utopianism is touching. But before he's able to incite the others into copycat writing, we just press this button and... Wow, he's disappeared. Is that CGI trickery? No, there's a laser cannon mounted on the camera. <laughs> I vaporised him. Is that legal? No body, no crime. <laughs> Despite the creepiness of CCTV, I have to say most of us are getting used to cameras decorating our urban landscape. But could you enjoy a picnic in the countryside if a camera were pointing right at you? I suppose if a SWAT team appeared and killed the wasps, you could. <laughs> Some people say, well, I'm happy with these security measures because I've got nothing to hide. But we've all got stuff to hide. You might want the CIA reading your emails or Gillian McKeith playing with your excrement, but I don't, frankly. <laughs> We all have private correspondence that should remain private, especially when there is so much correspondence. And people aren't all trading company secrets or pictures of blonde women who confuse getting into a car with a visit to an obstetrician. <laughs> Many people are keeping in touch with the world and some of that stuff is confidential. We all exchange thoughts that are not subversive but are nonetheless secret. We talk about family problems and how we hate people of our own political persuasion and which of our friends we think have Asperger's syndrome. <laughs> you might say the heightened homeland security mentality is a price worth paying. Well, that's all well and good until trained officers from the... Oh, blimey, they've given us guns! This is like the Sweeney squad. Kick your door down and shoot you, because there's a room around town you smoke camels. <laughs> But given that our theme is how to look, I should now address the pressure to look or not to look a certain way. Juliet, let's imagine you were invited to an awards ceremony for some reason. Would you... <laughs> would you feel that you should wear a designer gown? Well, they approach you to wear something, so you get a free outfit for the evening. Do you have to give it back after? Well, they don't want it, once it's got tear stains and sick on it. <laughs> Isn't there a whole market for posh clothes that have only been worn once? Oh, God, yes. You don't want to be caught twice in the same outfit. People think you're homeless or have dementia. It's ridiculous, isn't it? People spend a couple of grand on some amazing dress and then buy a new one the next time they get married. I mean, <laughs> that 
always bothers me at weddings. I'm thinking, that thing cost a bloody fortune. I hope she gets some wear out of it. <laughs> of course, men aren't under the same pressure as women when it comes to appearance, but there are still preconceived ideas about what we should look like. And women are happy enough to undermine our confidence if we don't conform to the advertising hoarding image of muscled manliness. You'll say, why haven't you got big muscles on your arms? And I think, because my job doesn't involve our muscles. I don't have to pose without a shirt, and I don't spend all day shinning up ladders holding building materials. My job involves sitting for long periods in badly ventilated rooms staring at a computer, sitting for long periods of time on badly ventilated trains staring at England, and sitting for long periods of time in completely un ventilated dressing rooms, staring at a blank sheet of paper on which I've written the word Sheffield. <laughs> and I'd, I'd have big muscles if my job involved manual labour or it was so mind-numbingly pointless that I had to expiate my self-loathing by spending all weekend in the gym. But everything about my profession is geared toward my committing suicide in a hotel room. So no, I don't have big arm muscles. <laughs> you might as well ask why my cheeks don't expand like Dizzy Gillespie's. <laughs> And, of course, it's not just labourers and male models who are muscular. Actors tend to work out because they're mostly out of work. And they need to be at the peak of physical fitness for the day they get their big film break and have to say, this way, please, follow me, to an American movie star whom they'll forever mention using his first name only. <laughs> Paul, you're head of non-specific expertise at the University of General Studies. Yeah, great. So why are we so concerned with how we look? Well, Jeremy, humankind has been concerned with the manipulation of the personal image since the dawn of time. They couldn't do it before dawn because it was too dark. <laughs> but nowadays, we have computer technology to help us. We can use Photoshop, for example, to change the way a picture of ourselves looks. You can choose any of your features to alter, and most people pick their nose. You can also stretch your legs, especially if you feel a bit stiff. And if you feel very stiff, you're in the right place, because you're out the computer anyway, and you can go straight online to sort yourself out. <laughs> but, um... Paul, why do people seem more concerned than ever before to, about controlling their body image? Well, Jeremy, I think you've already answered that question with that extremely salient point you made a moment ago. Oh, really? What was that? When you said you had pathetically puny arms. Well, that wasn't really the point. I was actually trying no, to... No, 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 no. There was a very profound truth in there, and it was very brave of you to be so honest about your slightly repellent physique. Oh, uh, well, thanks. Let's get a woman's view on this. Juliet... Uh, don't you find Jeremy's honesty appealing? Not really. Oh. I think there's a whole image problem. He's a bit old to wear some of those labels. What do you mean? Well, baby gap. Well, <laughs> don't you like these jeans? Well, I suppose they're the right length. <laughs> but it's not just the clothes, it's the nose ring. Makes you look like a key fob. <laughs> and those other metal studs must be absolutely agony. I don't think people mean that when they talk about piercing eyes. Well, well, thanks, both of you, and may I say that you have both unwittingly, if scriptedly, illustrated the superficiality of our image-based culture. Of course, it's easy to be prejudiced against people who look differently. They might be of a different race, they might wear something different, a cross, a turban, a yarmulke, or a veil. In the current climate, some politicians consider it appropriate to throw their weight around when it comes to what women wear on their heads. Jack Straw kicked this off by saying, I always ask the ladies to remove their veil when they come to my constituency surgery. I bet you do. Hello, my dear. You look awfully hot in that thing. Wouldn't you like to slip into these leather hot pants I've made for you? <laughs> and then other MPs pitched in saying, well, I'd never given it any 
sure, but now Jack's raised it, I realise it's a vital subject of national debate. Mind your own business. So you can't see the nose and mouth of someone in a veil. You can see their eyes, the windows of the soul. You don't need to see the cat flap. <laughs> if your mum rings for a chat, you don't say, Get in a cab, woman. I can't see your nose and mouth. I'm not interested. <laughs> But other people followed MPs and started saying that they also found it off-putting to see a woman in a veil. College lecturers have refused to teach young women in veils because they can't see them yawn. <laughs> people speak of banning veils altogether and pretend they're doing it to liberate women. I'm sorry, but if a woman wants to wear something, whether it's hot pants or a burqa, that is surely their right. You can't force people to dress as you say and then claim you're liberating them. For many women, dressing in an Islamic way is an act of defiance against government policy and a sign of solidarity with Muslims facing oppression and occupation. Women are saying, I am going to hijab up because, yes, I am a Muslim, and if you don't like it, I'll put the old tarpaulin on just to wind you up, you bugger. <laughs> By the way, I am entitled to speak for them because I am a community leader. <laughs> and if you think Muslim dress is unliberated, well, can you tell me, where in the world is this mythical land in which women dress in a way that's completely untainted by conditioning and patriarchy? Women the world over wear unpractical, uncomfortable and undignified things because that's the received wisdom about what they should look like. In most of the world, women remove varying amounts of body hair because it is perceived as unfeminine, even though all women have it. Women in the Middle East remove all of it, which is a bit weird, but I suppose it is quite Sunday there. And <laughs> even in the West, women take off quite a bit of body hair, including from what is known as the bikini area. Not an atoll with French nuclear tests on it, but the crotch. And the main reason they depilate there is they can't find a swimming costume that covers what God gave them. How insane is that? You have to have hot wax smeared on your groin and ripped off again because in our glorious, free, democratic, consumer's paradise, you can't get women's swimming trunks that cover your twinkle properly. <laughs> and we bomb people so they can learn our way of life. <laughs> And the amount of hair allowed seems to diminish every year. Quite normal now is the tiny strip known as a Brazilian. I don't even know why it's called that. It looks more like chili. <laughs> but all right, let's not avoid the issue of Islamic women's clothing. There's only a minute left, so let's tackle it. Customs can seem strange to people who aren't used to them, and the burqa, the total covering with even the eyes obscured, might be seen as alienating. But if it were just a fashion trend, I doubt whether it would bother anyone. Where do things have been worn? It's because it's Islamic that people are especially troubled by it. But let's say you find it sets up a barrier between you and the person wearing the burqa. Well, think laterally. Maybe you should put one on yourself. And the gap is bridged. And other gaps would be bridged if we all put one on. You wouldn't be able to tell a person's religion or sex or age or colour. And if you think about it, it's a very practical garment. Especially for women who spend ages trying to work out what to wear. Just have a burqa. You'd never be late for work. If you oversleep, you can quickly pull it on over your nightclothes and rush straight into work. No one would know you've got your pyjamas on underneath. How cool would that be? You're in an important meeting, completely in control, and no one knows that underneath your burqa, you're wearing gym jams and slippers and holding a teddy. <laughs> 
if it's freezing in the office, you can keep your coat on under your burqa and still look smart and professional. If it's boiling in the summer and the air conditioning's packed up, you can go commando. <laughs> completely naked under your burqa and no one knows. You always look smart, you're always on time. Just throw your burqa on, set your alarm for five minutes before you have to leave the house, burqa on, out the door, never late. Don't feel like going in, send a couple of the kids one on top of the other. <laughs> Good night. Jeremy Hardy's speech to the nation was written by Jeremy Hardy with additional material by Paul B. Davis. It also starred Juliet Stevenson and Paul B. Davis. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC.